Jason's coming up. Jason Pelling and Chantel McDonald are coming to teach us more on the Passover. This is a brother-sister team this morning, and we're looking forward to hearing from you guys. Thanks. Thank you, Julie. Good morning. You're, yeah, come a little closer. I don't think we've done this before. In all our years of being alive together, have we done a teaching together? Oh, he said, ah. Oh. I was just trying to remember. I wasn't looking for the ah. Oh. We're going we're gonna to continue to, yeah, as Julie said, look at the Passover and how it leads us to Jesus and how Passover is a good habit God wants us to have. To that end, let's start with this video from James K.A. Smith. Thanks, media. Coming to appreciate the spiritual power of habit is also coming to appreciate the spiritual power of repetition and to affirm that in a positive way. In all kinds of sort of natural areas of our life, we completely understand and appreciate the power of habit. If you want to master the violin or the piano or a golf swing, we all know that if you, I want to become the kind of person for whom that is natural, second nature, I need to commit myself to regimens and disciplines of repetition that make that sort of seep into me in a way that I don't have to think about it anymore. What I want Christians to appreciate is there's a spiritual principle that does the same thing. That, that this, we're not talking about vain repetition and showing off and doing things for the sake of duty. Think of spiritual disciplines and liturgical rhythms as really ways of being invited into the gospel story over and over and over again in such a way that now it gets woven into the very fabric of your character. It's now bubbling up from who you are. It becomes second nature. And in that sense, not until we appreciate the formative power of repetition will we in fact see spiritual transformation. There is no formation where there is no repetition. And so if we want to see transformation, we have to embrace good repetition. Thank you, James. Good job, James. The power of habit. And uh, sometimes we can be inclined to think, well, it's all what's going on in here. And if I give mental assent to the right things, then I've got it in here. But God knows we need other ways to get the story in us. Hence, all of this and thousand years, thousands of years of tradition that are a prophetic act to remember who God is and what he's done. And you've been gleaning bits and pieces of this the last few weeks as we've uh, spoken. But this morning we want to kind of get into a, a little bit of the actual physical Passover meal as a signpost to who God is and what Jesus has done. So Christ in the Passover. So I love what James said about thinking of spiritual disciplines and liturgical rhythms. Liturgical just means it's an order for the way we worship. And I would add in there, and God's festivals as ways of being invited into the gospel story over and over again in such a way it gets woven into the very fabric of our being and our character and it's now bubbling up from who we are. We want God's story in us. We want that witness of Jesus coming out of us wherever we go. And God knows we need the handheld annual and even weekly rhythms. We talked a few weeks ago about the Sabbath being the weekly starting point for getting in God's rhythm. And then these annual festivals that keep bringing us back to our identity. That was their purpose for the nation of Israel. And that still is their purpose, we believe, for anchoring us to God's story and the prophetic signpost that it is to who Jesus is. So that's how we need to see Passover. And as Lauren said, some of you already organized for meals on Saturday night as Passover on the Hebrew calendar begins. And, and we want you to remember this. Some of you will be doing this yourselves. Uh, some of you may do, be doing it a little bit differently. Um, perhaps if your kids are you know, shorter than this, uh, you have to get creative. Um, but some of you will be able to, to go through some of the symbols. And um, I... This word prophetic, okay, saying Passover is a prophetic act. What is prophetic? 
Uh, we always like to anchor it in scripture. So in Revelation 19.11, we've got one of the clearest definitions when it says the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. So if you want to, if you've maybe had prophetic just sounds like weird and kooky to you, no, anchor it to the scriptures and that's where you end up, the testimony of Jesus. So as we share a Passover meal as a community, we want to declare Jesus. You, you okay with that? On board with that? So here's my, here's my little sentence for the goal of a Passover meal. I think the goal of a prophetic Passover meal, a, a Passover meal centered on Christ, is a storytelling meal that stirs faith and produces worship. So some of you will be participating for the first time, and I want you to see it as going into a storytelling meal that stirs faith as we talk about the things God has done and that produces worship, because that's what God wants to form in us. He called Israel out of Egypt to say, you're going to be my kingdom of priests, and he gave them instructions for ways to remember who they are, and that is still, that's our story as the people of God. So we're going to have a Bible reading now by me, and it's from Exodus 12. And I just want to pray as we get into God's word, and then we're going to look at what's on the table and unpack it a little bit this morning. So Father, here we are, and we again just humble ourselves before in your presence and before your word and ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know you better. Amen. Exodus 12, the first 11 verses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Are there any Hebrew scholars among us who remember what this month is called? Or just ordinary people? Nisan. Very good. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. I was camping down south on the long weekend a couple of weeks ago, and we had a whole lamb on the spit for someone's 40th birthday. And um, I think we had about 40 people there, so... If your household's too small, I'm thinking there's going to be a lot of people sharing, unless you are very productive. Anyway, it does say the humorous were, the, hum, the, the Hebrews were numerous. Um, that's a lot of lamb. That's my point. So share. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. So God doesn't want anyone to miss out here. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And just remember that in the, the Hebrew worldview, the biblical worldview, the day, one day ends at twilight, the next day begins. The new day begins at sunset. So you begin with rest. They are then to take some of the blood, put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted of the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Very specific. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water but roasted over a fire with the head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Amen. So, Chantel, you've been doing a great job just waiting for me to finish. Tell us what we have on our table here. Right. This is our Passover. It wouldn't quite be an Australian Passover without flies either, would it? Um, we have unleavened bread, matzah. We have homemade or store bought. I did make that. Yes. Wow, it's very square for homemade. Yes. Well done. I neatened the edges this year. <laughs> uh, these are the bitter herbs. I've used rocket and kale this year. Anything bitter, lettuce leaves. Some people find fresh horseradish. Horseradish. 
parsley and salt water. I've got salt here. There we go. Look at that. It's like a cooking show. Haroset. Haroset. This is apple, walnut, a bit of sugar, cinnamon. Very nice. And, of course, the lamb. Which will be served at the McDonald House for lunch if you're not going anywhere later on. Um, No, I think their household's big enough to consume that. So what you'll notice as we go through, or what I want you to be aware of is that this is... There are traditions thousands of years old here. Some of it, there's explicit links to the scriptures. And some of it, as you know, in your your household, your family tradition, there are things you create over time. And it's not because it's better than the way someone else does. It's a way that you tell the story. So you may have special silverware that only comes out for, you know, certain times of year, that kind of thing. So we, in our Passover meal, this is not a traditional Passover in the sense of if you went to Israel and were invited into a home, you would experience this. But this is an adaptation using the things we see in the scripture, looking into God's story and wanting to say, what are the traditions we can build into our lives? What commands can we obey all to get this story in us? So I hope that makes sense. But always good to run traditions through the filter of does this come from Scripture? Does this align with Scripture? Or are, are these man-made traditions leading us to another place we don't want to go? You always want to have that filter with tradition. So this might be how the meal goes. Traditionally, so Exodus 12 didn't say light a candle, but in, in uh, tradition, the eldest woman of the house lights the candle that could be a fun dinner time conversation starter, couldn't it? If you're having people over, the oldest woman in the house. I think it's supposed to be the mother of the house. Uh, lights the candles, the festival lights to signal, okay, Passover has begun. Uh, it's, it's just, it's a tradition, but it's a great way to start and to, to think about the theme of the God who brings light. And traditionally, a prayer is prayed to begin. So I'm going to get you to pray a prayer we've adapted from a a traditional Passover blessing. Would you please stand and pray it with us just to practice? It's going to come up on the screen. Thank you. So say this with us. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have chosen us from the beginning of time. You have made us holy through the blood of your Son the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In love you have given us Sabbaths for rest, holidays for joy, festivals for gladness, and your Son for our freedom. Blessings to our God who chose to deliver us. Amen. You may be seated. One of the traditions that is firmly grounded in Scripture is that of unleavened bread. There's a whole festival called unleavened bread. So Chantel's going to share a little bit about that. Yes. Firstly, it's tradition in a Passover for the youngest child to ask a question. So for the children who are in here, can you please nice and loudly ask me this question? All of you. Ready, set, go. Well, let me tell you. <laughs> Do you know what matzah is? What is matzah? Yes, this is the matzah. It's unleavened bread. It doesn't have time to ferment and rise. It's yeast-free. Okay, so the Israelites were instructed to obey God's instruction to kill a lamb, paint the blood on the doors, and be ready to leave. So this bread tells us of the Israelites' quick escape from Egypt. They were on the run. They had to move fast, so they needed fast food. Okay, this bread can be rolled and cooked in 20 minutes if your barbecue is ready to go. And I think it's supposed to be within 18 mi- minutes, technically, just let's reduce fermenting. Yes, the science um, says the 18 Jewish, minutes. That's the science behind it. But anyway, yes. So they didn't have time to have nice, soft, fresh bread rolls. They had to have fast food, unleavened dough. God calls it the bread of affliction in Deuteronomy 16. It's a memorial to the misery and oppression they experienced for so long, 430 years of slavery. But it is also a testimony to the day of deliverance, the moment of miraculous freedom when they were told to get up and leave. This bread tells us of Christ himself. You could probably come up and have a look at the end, but 
It's pierced. It's got stripes from the grill. It's made of flour, which we all know comes from crushed wheat, right? Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So there's a lot of imagery in this bread that points to Jesus, who himself was whipped and beaten, pierced with nails. And Isaiah says this was for our forgiveness, for our peace and healing. Jesus was pierced for our rebellion. Yeast is often referred to as representative of sin in the Bible. So we can see this unleavened bread being a picture of Jesus, the bread of heaven. At the Last Supper, Jesus broke bread and he said, This is my body. He was broken for us so that we may be filled with nourishing life. And because he was sinless, he qualified to be that ultimate Passover lamb sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and 8 says, Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We see in this verse, Paul calls calls Christ the Passover lamb. But something else that I've noticed this year is Paul calling the believers a new batch of unleavened dough. And I think this is something that God's been stirring in the last week with some of the teachings we've had. So I just wanted to highlight it again because, you know, the the scripture says you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. It says we are called to be holy as he is holy, to be imitators of Christ. So if Christ is without sin, then what should our aim be? And what has he freed us? Who has he freed us to be but a sinless people? Paul says to be a new unleavened batch as you really are. And just like the Israelites had to apply the blood, they had to be ready to leave. So there's a message here for us to obey God's instruction and be ready. The world is not as it has ever been before. Jesus' return is closer and we want to be ready to move with God. We don't want to be weighed down with sin, living in complacency or compromise or procrastination. We want to be ready now to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles, to stop clinging to the old life and sinful patterns, to not look back with yearning to the old life of Egypt like, is, like the Israelites did in the wilderness, but to, to, to look forward and to move into the freedom that he has paid such a high price for us to have, to be that unleavened batch 2 Corinthians 5:21 God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So this is why we eat bread without yeast to remember Israel's deliverance, to remember our deliverance, to remember Christ's sinless life, his body broken for us, and to encourage one another to live without the leaven of sin holding us back from the fullness God has for us. Very good, thank you. So can you see how there are levels of meaning to explore in some of these things, these hands-on things to do, rhythms to engage in, to remember God's story. And Exodus 13.8 says, you know, when your children come to you and ask, why are we doing this tonight? As, and we have that tradition of the youngest child asking the question, you are to tell them, this is what God did for me. So it's that storytelling meal declaring who God is and what he's done. Now, moving on to the maro, which is the bitter herbs. So this is another specific biblical instruction. Eat the lamb with the bitter herbs. Um, I'm not going to eat them. I'm going to choose to pass on that, This pass over on that this morning. Um, Children, can you read the question on the screen, please? Can you ask it like you actually don't know and you want to know? Try again. One, two, three, go. Ah, that's better. Well, the first, the starting place is God said do it. So that's a good enough reason to do it. 
But in the bitterness, in the sensory experience of ingesting that bitterness, there is the story told of the bitterness of slavery and that reminder of this is who we were as a people, but we're not slaves in Egypt anymore. God has delivered us. And for those of you who are tracking with our Passover devotionals, which are available via email or printed booklets, you may have read Spurgeon saying this week, the old British preacher, let us go back to the day in our experience when we lived in the land of Egypt, working in the brick kilns of sin, toiling to make ourselves better and finding it to be of no use. So we want to see ourselves in the story and know that we're not, it's not about stirring up painful memories, but it is important to remember where we've come from and what God has done and give witness to that, even in our homes as others are invited in, perhaps to, to gather for Passover, to give a testimony. This is what God has done. So that is the maro. And then we move on to the karpas, which is this one. Yes, so we're using parsley. Chantal's already put salt in the water because you're going to dip your parsley into the salted water and it's another bitter experience as you enjoy this meal together. So children, we have another question on the screen for the karpas. What does it say? Now you're getting the hang of it. I like it. So reading from the uh, booklet we've made for a Passover meal, it says, Parsley is dipped in salt water to remind us of the bitterness of slavery that Israel endured. The bowl of salted water speaks of many tears. Kids, you know when you have tears and they run into your mouth and you go, oh, that's salty and that, that kind of thing. The tears that were shed, the cries that went up to God for deliverance from their powerful enemy. Let us remember God is a father who sees and cares and is stronger than the enemy. Amen. For me, this also, as I was reading it this week, reminded me of Revelation 6 and the martyrs, the blood of the martyrs crying out at the altar in heaven. How long, O Lord, the many tears shed for lives lost for the sake of the gospel. And how long until you bring justice and judge the nations? How long until you make the wrong things right? Just as the Israelites cried out in Egypt, we're oppressed. They were groaning under the weight of that brutal slavery. The earth is groaning. Creation is groaning. God's people and many nations in the earth are groaning under persecution. And we can remember as we dip the parsley the first time, we remember the bitterness, the tears shed. But then we're going to dip a second time. There's a tradition of dipping again. And we're going to do that in hope for the promise of all tears being wiped away. Revelation 21. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain, no more mourning. He's going to bring an end to it all. He's going to make all things new and right. So we dip a second time to declare he is coming. The kingdom of God will be here in fullness. Every tear wiped away. What a beautiful promise to enter into as we share a meal together. So that is the carpus. I have to remember. The maro, the carpus. Okay. The haraset. Yes. Oh, I said that pretty well. You did. Good Hebrew. This represents the mortar. This one. Yep, the mortar and the bricks. 430 years of backbreaking slavery. Exodus 2 tells us that the people groaned and sighed because of their slavery. They were yearning and sighing, crying out for rest and freedom. And there is a yearning and a groaning in every human heart for rest and freedom too. Before we were saved and at different times we find ourselves stuck in circumstances or God highlights patterns of sin and we cry comes up again in us, God help us and God save us and it is Christ who is our great deliverer. So this mixture represents Israel's slavery and our own slavery to sin and the need for a deliverer. And then we look at the mixture and it's sweet, it's got apple, sugar, and we remember the sweetness of freedom that God brings. How God intervened in Egypt and broke the power of Pharaoh. God's intention for Israel was to be set free to worship him. To bring them to a place where they could rest and live in their identity as a kingdom of priests. Worshipping and representing God to the world as his image bearers. And God's intention for us is the same. 
He wants us to come into that contented rest in our true identity as worshippers before God and image bearers of God who are free from the power of sin. This is the sweet freedom that Jesus brought for us at the cost of his life. Jesus intervened and broke the power of sin. Outside of Christ, we're slaves to sin. We have no power to deliver ourselves. And actually, we didn't even deserve deliverance. We deserve neither mercy nor grace. But God, who is rich in love, God, who while we were still sinners, sent his only begotten son that we should not perish but live, that we should not be slaves but be free. So we can say like Paul did in Romans 7, 24 and 25, what a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So with this carousel, we remember God is mighty to save and he came near to us and broke the power of sin to set us free. Amen. In a Passover meal, there's traditionally four questions. The fourth one is this. Children, help me out again. Good question. And we're not even reclining, are we? I have done a Passover meal with, you know, the, the trestle table and the milk crates in the living room so it's nice and low and the pillows around it to do the act of reclining, which again is a tradition that it's emerged. And it is a great tradition if you're able to replicate that in your home. Um, basically, why are we eating this meal reclining? Because free people can. Slaves don't recline and enjoy a meal, but free people do. So what a gift. I mean, it's hard for us to enter in to the depth of that story of slavery, physical slavery. But no days off, no time just to sit and relax. But here, as the years went on, they got to recline and enjoy the Passover meal. And we too get to share the meal as children of the king, not slaves in his house, but sons and daughters. So that's why we can recline. Now we're coming to the last part of uh, our presentation. We're not going to talk about the cups today. You can go, traditionally there are four cups, uh, four sips, a toast. There's, there's more to explore in this. But we want to finish by talking about the lamb and then Wayne's going to come and lead us in Feast of Jesus. But we come to the Lamb and obviously we come to a major theme of all of Scripture. In fact, it's so major, it's so uh, often repeated that we're probably in danger of missing it due to over-familiarity. It's one of those things. We sing it all the time. We sung it this morning. Uh, we sing hallelujah. The Lamb has overcome. But let's, let's not lose the beauty of what God is speaking of. Uh, a couple of verses about this. John the Baptist speaking when he saw Jesus, recorded in John one twenty nine. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what was in John's mind as he said that? Peter, later writing his letter to the church, says, For you know it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, the blood of Messiah, a lamb without blemish or defect. So these guys haven't, you know, flicked open a concordance or Googled lamb of God like we can. We want to unpack that a little bit. But what do they have in mind? They have a, a temple system and, and the, the spotless lambs used for sacrifices. And back to Exodus 12, they have what God called in Exodus 12:27 the Passover sacrifice this lamb. So we know this, but we want to we wanna appreciate it again. And Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Chantel, tell us more about how the lamb theme comes through in Christ. Yeah. Well, let's, let's take the points from Exodus 12, which you read before. Verse 3, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's house. This reminds us of John 13 verse 1, which says, Before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. 
And so we can see here Jesus as the lamb of his father's house. Exodus 12.5 mentions an unblemished lamb. Hebrews 9 speaks of the unblemished offering of the blood of Christ. In Exodus 12.8, the Israelites were told to eat the flesh of the lamb. And in John 6, Jesus says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have eternal life. Exodus 12, 12, God struck down both man and beast, but because of the blood on the doorposts, he passed over the Israelites. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, 5, God the Father struck down God the Son, and our punishment fell on him. The hyssop plant, Exodus 12, 22, was used to spread the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts, And it was the hyssop that the soldiers used in John 19 to lift the sponge of wine vinegar to the man on the blood-soaked cross, Jesus. Exodus 12, 46. The bones of the Passover lamb were not to be broken. And we remember when the soldier went to break Jesus' legs, John 19. But he didn't do it because Jesus had already died. And lastly, verse 23, when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. So here we remember that through, that though the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy, 1 John 3 says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Amen. So it's it's a lamb who was slain and they sing in heaven, worthy is the lamb who was slain. But it's not a picture of weakness. It's a picture of strength and victory in the midst of suffering, an unusual and unexpected way of God accomplishing his purposes. And the story of the lamb just doesn't end at the cross. If you, some of you have been reading the book of Revelation a lot lately and What's one of the words most often repeated in the book of Revelation? Jesus as the Lamb. It's the book titled The Revelation of Jesus Christ, yet the phrase Jesus Christ only appears in there a few times, uh, seven, I think, and the term Messiah or Christ appears in there four times, but the Lamb, 29 times at least depending on how you read it. So clearly this is a message God wants to get across to us and a a theme he wants us to stick with. The lamb who was slain. But in Revelation 6, it's also the wrath of the lamb, which is terrifying the kings of the earth and they're fleeing and asking the mountains to fall on them. So it's not a picture of weakness. It's not something that we say, thank you for the suffering lamb and now we move on. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's also that picture in the book of Revelation. Yet when John looks in that vision, he sees a lamb. And throughout the whole book, it's the lamb at the center of the throne. It's worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's the lamb that the 144,000 follow. I encourage you, don't just stop at the Passover lamb, but go on with the story of what is yet to unfold under the leadership of the one who is the Lamb. God's chosen to reveal himself in that way to us. Two things as I wrap this up before we hand over to Wayne. Two things to take away from the Lamb in the book of Revelation. That the Lamb is ultimately victorious and that the Lamb is central to worship. He's victorious. He's the suffering one. He shed his blood, but his suffering is unto victory. He's not passive or weak. He's victorious. The pathway to victory was suffering. But because he went on that pathway of suffering, he is the guarantee to all of us who may suffer. All of our brothers and sisters who are literally having blood shed because of their allegiance to Jesus. This lamb, this one who has walked this path ahead of us, he's the guarantee for us that though we walk through suffering, There is victory. If we cling to him, if we become those who follow the lamb wherever he goes, as Revelation says, it's a story that ends in victory. Secondly, the lamb is the center of worship again and again. In chapter 5, 
It's the slain lamb that takes the scroll in heaven with seals and he opens those seals and begins to release judgments into the earth to prepare the earth for the end of the age, for the fullness of the kingdom of God. And that's when the song comes out. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And it's not a song about a dead person. It's not a memorial, not just a memorial. It's a song to someone who is very much alive and who is continuing to spend his strength on behalf of a weak people, but a people who are going to have their eyes fixed on him, a people who are going to say yes to him, a Passover people who are going to know their story, the story of Israel, the story of the nations grafted into the story of Israel through Jesus Christ. And we together are going to stand and say, worthy is the lamb as he comes and he makes all things new and all things right. So the story of the lamb goes on. And I would encourage you to, to look into that this Passover as you share a meal and prepare for that together. Wayne, I'd like to invite you to come and wrap this up this morning by leading us to the feast of Jesus. And Nathan's going to come and lead us into worship as well. So thank you. Feel free after we've concluded the service to come and talk to Chantel. Don't ask me about your Passover table preparations. Jason and Chantel, thank you so much. Look, this, this, you guys have done a great, great job uh, walking, walking it through for people who have heard it many times and for those who perhaps heard it for the first time. You've, you've equipped us, you've given us great insight and understanding as to what this is all about and how it connects. And I want to uh, begin to make um, some comments and make some application as we enter into the time of the Feast of Jesus. This is what we call where we take bread and juice and we remember the work of Christ. And one of the things that Paul does in his letters to the churches, which are, which are written predominantly to non-Jewish audiences, to people who, who have come and embraced Jesus as the Messiah and Lord, begun to follow him in their cultural context. And he, he continues to anchor them in the story that they've been, into, they've been connected to. And this is what he does in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, And I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to speak for a couple of minutes before we actually partake of the the, uh, bread and the juice and and focus on what Christ has done because it is so powerful. Now, I would love to have the time uh, to this morning to... Walk us through Ephesians chapter 2. And I do encourage you to go home and to read Ephesians 2. Uh, the richness. And Paul begins this chapter and he, and he speaks to the people and he says, Remember who you were before you came to Christ. Remember what your life was like. Remember what Christ has done for you. And then he moves forward. And, he's, and one of the things that he says is, you were outside of the covenant promises of God. But now through Christ, you've been brought into the covenant promises of God that were given to the people of Israel. And so we have this beautiful reminder of a covenant promise that God made with Israel that we have been brought into through Christ. We've And language Paul uses in other places, we've been grafted in like a tree. We've been grafted, we're branches that are grafted into that. And so picking up in verse uh, 11, this is what he says. So don't forget that you were not born as Jews and were uncircumcised. Uh, You had none of the Jewish covenants and laws. You were foreigners to Israel's incredible heritage. You were without the covenants and prophetic promises of the Messiah, the promised hope, and without God. That's who you were. That's who you were. You were without God. You were without hope. And then now, continuing to read in verse 13. Let yet look at you now. Everything is new. 
Although you were once distant and far away from God, now you've been brought delightfully close to him through the sacred blood of Jesus. You've actually been united to Christ. It's a phenomenal phrase, that. One that Paul uses again and again in his writings to, to speak to people. And it's so relevant for us to remember we've been united to Christ. Our life is no longer our own. We belong to him. We've been brought into who he is. We're united to Christ. Our reconciling peace is Jesus. And now he's going to make application to them and some of the conflicts that they've got going on in their culture and even in the church. Our reconciling peace is Jesus. He has made Jew and non-Jew one in Christ. By dying as our sacrifice, he has broken down every wall of prejudice that separated us and has now made us equal through our union with Christ. Ethnic hatred has been dissolved by the crucifixion of his precious body on the cross. The legal code that stood condemning every one of us has now been repealed by his command. His triune essence has made peace between us by starting over, forming one new race of humanity, Jews and non-Jews, fused together in himself. Let me say that again. Read it again. By dying as our sacrifice, he has broken down every wall of prejudice that separated us. Ah... One of some of the other translations used the wall of hostility that separate us. So think about what's going on in our culture, people. People, there there are many people very actively engaging, not in tearing down walls of hostility, but building walls of hostility. We are showing in our society that outside of Christ, we are completely incapable of taking down the walls of prejudice and the walls of hostility that separate people of ethnics, traditions, ethnicity. It's the same theme that Paul picks up in his letter to the Galatians, as he says in Galatians 3, 26 and 29. He's adapting this same principle of being united to Christ in a slightly different context. And so he says, no longer, you should no longer see each other as Jew or non-Jew. Rich or poor, male or female, because we're all one through our union with Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is not saying that those there are, that Jews and non-Jews, those that category doesn't exist anymore in terms of our ethnicity. He's not saying that there's no longer rich or poor, that that socio-economic category doesn't exist anymore. He's not saying that. There's no more males and females as if the gender category doesn't exist anymore. But what he's saying is in the way that we relate to one another, we relate beyond that. We relate because we are in Christ. So I don't relate to you as a woman, although I do relate to you as a woman, but I relate to you as a woman in Christ. You relate to me as a man in Christ. If you're wealthier than me, I relate to you as a wealthy person in Christ. Poorer, same. Ethnicity, I don't relate on the basis of my ethnicity. I relate on the basis of you are in Christ and I'm in Christ. We are one. We are in Christ together. This is the application. So as we are working through this freedom festival, it's a freedom to break down and to enter into the reality of what Christ has done, that he has made peace between the warring factions in the world, the ethnic ethnic wars, the gender wars, the socioeconomic wars. The answer is Christ. Now, people who are listening to me this morning, I want to say to you, if you are in Christ, then you are an answer to the wars that are going on in our society and you need to build voice to that. You need to be one who speaks of the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundations of the world, the one who's hung on the cross, the one who suffered and bled and died, and it's in him that we find our peace. First of all, reconciling us to God, which 
is the vertical axis of the cross. Secondly, the horizontal axis of the cross is a reconciliation to one another. So in the church, we don't relate to each other in, that, in these categories. We simply relate as you are in Christ and I am in Christ. Therefore, we are one in Christ. It's a oneness. And this is the beauty and the richness of the Feast of Jesus. It's one of the outworkings of it. But just as Paul had to speak to the Ephesians and to the Galatians about these things, and later on James had to write, when he writes his letter, he had to speak to them because they were, the church was beginning to treat people who, were, who were, had more resources, people who, oh, come and have the valuable seats. Come and have the front seats. You've got the resources. And James rebukes them for that. He says, this is the house of God. This is the family of God. This whole thing, we have one Father, one mediator. We are one. We don't relate. We don't give special preference to people who have more resource than others. We don't give preference to people on the basis of the color of their skin or their ethnicity. We don't do that in the body of Christ. We one together. We all stand equally. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2. I felt it was very important to bring this word to you this morning with, with respect to what's going on and the bitterness and hostility that's raging in our culture. People, you have a message of hope to give to the people and an antidote and to point them to the Passover lamb and say, he's our hope. You want an answer for the, for, the, for the wars, the ethnic wars and all these other wars, the rich and poor war. You want an answer for that? You say to people, you want, you want that? The answer is Jesus. It's Jesus that breaks down the dividing wall of hostility that exists. And he's first of all got to do it in each of us. We first of all have to grip, be gripped by the reality that none of us, none of us have any, any place to boast. And that's, the pre, that's what Paul outlines in the beginning of that first chapter, uh, the first bit of Ephesians 2. He says... Salvation is purely by grace. None of us earned it. None of us can boast of it. We all received it as grace, as a gift from heaven, a gift from God. And because we understand that reality, because I've come to be in Christ, not based on anything that I did, but based on His work, His work on the cross, his body broken for us. His blood poured out for us. That's why I come. And so as we take these elements this morning, I want to remind you all of this reality. And let me read it to you again. Yet look at you now. Because you're in Christ, everything is new. Although you were once distant and far away from God, now you have been brought delightfully close to him through the sacred blood of Jesus. You have actually been united to Christ. Our reconciling peace is Jesus. He has made Jew and non-Jew one in Christ. But dying as our sacrifice, he has broken down every wall of prejudice that separated us and has now made us equal through our union with Christ. Ethnic hatred has been dissolved by the crucifixion of his precious blood on the cross. The legal code that stood condemning every one of us has now been repealed by his command. The triune essence has made peace between us by starting over, forming one new race of humanity, fused together in himself. This is what we say, that we are in Christ. It's the declaration that in him we have become one in Christ. And now it's the challenge is, is walking that out in our relationships with one another and walking it out in our relationships in the world and it being ambassadors of reconciliation, imploring people to be reconciled to God so that therefore they can be reconciled 
to each other as well. And so I invite you to take bread. You've only got a small piece of bread. I've got a large piece of bread and I deliberately chose my favorite bread for this morning. But also I wanted to speak and say it's because there's no ethnic division in Christ. There's a oneness. White, brown, black, it doesn't matter. We come to Christ. We come to Him. And you see, when we eat His body, it's that reality. I've become, I am in Him and He is in me. So I invite you to eat and give thanks for Christ. And now I invite you to take the juice, which is that symbol of his blood. <laughs> uh, I love, uh, I'm not a doctor, but so far as I know, um, we all bleed the same color blood, do we not? Perhaps a medical person could just, depot. yeah, thank you. Um, just to say, you know, and so this is, a, isn't this a beautiful picture? of the blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin, that unites us to himself and unites us back to the Father and brings us into his eternal family of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. There's one in him. So I invite you to drink and to celebrate and to commit yourself afresh today to live out the reality of oneness in Christ. Let's pray together. We're in awe of you, Jesus. You are the lamb that was slain. And you are the lion of the tribe of Judah that's triumphed. Your resurrection is the evidence that this work that was prophesied, this, the full work that was foretold right back in Genesis, has become a reality. You've crushed the serpent's head. You've redeemed not just Israel, but you've redeemed people for yourself from every tribe and tongue and nation. And I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, the one who lives within us, that you will help all of us to live out the reality of being one in Christ and relating to people on that basis. And on no other basis. That we will be people who take down the, the walls of hostility and the walls of prejudice. That they will not be found among us as a people. They will not be found in the way that we relate to other human beings. That rather we will call all into union with Christ. Invite them to bow down and to worship him and to give thanks for him, just as we have done this morning and will continue to do. We thank you, God, for your mercy. We thank you that it is because of your mercy that we have access to you, that we even participate in all that we've done this morning. It's mercy, your mercy, God, that we are received. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, stir up new and deeper gratitude of mercy in our hearts for your glory and honor, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.